and welcome to yet another episode of an unqualified guide to the good life the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so this time back to back episodes with slightly more qualifications than than usual um with me my name's adam with me as always is nick doing his thing in geneva and we also have a very special guest with us today um devin ibanez hi devin thank you so much for joining us hi thank you Um, for having me very excited to have you here. Devin is the first openly gay major league rugby player in the US, dedicated to LGBTQ plus advocacy in sport. I hope to uh, inspire LGBTQ plus athletes. Um, you're from Boston, Devin, played major league rugby team, the New England Free Jacks in the 2019 season and won a gold medal while representing Team USA at the 2017 World Maccabiah Games in Israel, which is one I had to look up, but is very cool. <laughs> and now you're, you're in England and starting playing rugby here as well. Hi, Devin, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been in the UK since about a month ago, so I'm finally mm. settled into the time difference and playing nice. rugby over here, like you said. And yeah, it's it's been awesome being with my partner because we've been separated for the last year or so by the pandemic. So yeah. it's been sort of catching up on uh, all the all the missed time <laughs> together. That's amazing. So Devin, um, thank you so much for joining us. And um, by, by way of introduction, perhaps you could yeah, explain a little bit about your, about your, your background, how you, how you came to play rugby um, and, and yeah, how you, you got involved in, in all of that uh, and all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I actually have been playing rugby for about 13 years now. So and how old are you for our our audience? I'm 27. So I picked it up when I was around 15 or so. Okay. Um, So I actually picked it up like very much by chance. I had actually never even heard of rugby, didn't have any concept of what rugby was other than that it involved tackling and contact. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way I came into it was I went and I tried out for the freshman baseball team. And I okay. thought that maybe that was at your be high my school sport. Yeah. At my high school. Okay. So it was the first year of playing and I went to try out and I ended up being one of four players not to make the team. So <laughs> I think I decided that uh, I probably had to think of a different sport that might suit me a little better. So after not doing anything my first year of high school, that's how I found rugby. I was like, I don't know what this sport is, but it's not baseball. And I know baseball is not going to be my sport. So <laughs> I might as well try something else. That's uh, it's amazing to go from that by chance to then becoming a, a professional player. But, um, <laughs> that's and what, what position do you play on, on the team? So I play number seven, so I'm a flanker. Okay. So pretty much my job is based on how many times I can smash into other people in a single given match. So I, I think that that suited me better than trying to take a bat and put it onto a ball because I don't think my hand-eye coordination was uh, quite cut out for that. <laughs> that's um that that's uh that seems a good reason to any and uh <laughs> nick i i don't know actually how familiar you are with rugby does does flanker mean very much to you? um vaguely vaguely I, i've never really played rugby but um there was quite a strong culture of it when i was at school in the uk i was like on the football side of the divide so um i didn't i didn't divide uh, it's a real yeah there 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 is a divide um (laughs) which is a silly one to be honest but it was there actually to the point where quite often um i think my 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 most potent experiences of rugby are playing the rugby team in both a rugby match and a football match back to back um and generally the rugby players thrashed us at both that well they were better at football than we were at rugby yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so anyway, I, so I sort of know the positions and, and um, I understand the rules of the game. My dad is also a huge fan. So I watch the six nations, whenever that's on. Um, 
and um and the world cup too but uh, yeah, i'm i'm myself don't play it very much or very well either <laughs> <laughs> that's that's interesting that your school did that because my, my school also did that and i played on I, on the rugby team in school um i was i was a hooker was my my position okay um, shout out hookers. to our american audience uh for whom that is a real position <laughs> and not just a joke <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay you used to play hooker there very good i was yeah. i scored one try in the four years i played um but i was damn good at hooking the ball um and uh we we also played the football team every every year one half rugby one half football and the football team always beat us actually um really mm, interesting. yeah because they were, well, one, they kept up their fitness a lot better. And it was the off season for us and they kept up their fitness better. And the other was they, it's surprisingly hard to play rugby against people who don't know how to play rugby because they'll just sort of run at you in a way that you just completely don't expect. And you don't quite know how to act in, in that, um, in that scenario. Mm. Um, yeah, but cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we never did anything like that because I think that if we tried to do a half and half match, all the soccer players in the US would just not even know where to start in terms of playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think here at least there was a little bit more of like uh, we sort of knew each other's sports better. Um I think the rugby players had the advantage because of like size. Um, when it came to football, it was like so at was that it, kind of like was it like a age. full contact thing, or was it like a half football, half touch rugby um, kind of situation? I think we so it was it was it was mostly like touch touch rugby. Um, we did do it full contact once, but that I mean that that was like too big a divide <laughs> between the levels. It was because like, then it's like you know how, how do you even tackle and <laughs> yeah yeah putting in people who don't have training tackling is not exactly a. Uh, yeah, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't really make sense. I think it was mostly touch rugby. Yeah, that's, that's cool though. That's cool. So yeah. uh, maybe just for our audience who might not be so familiar with rugby, because uh, we we do have a fair amount of people in the US where it's it's growing, but not not as big as as other sports. Um, Devin, do you want to give a, a thirty second introduction to rugby and the 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 sport and how it's played and everything? <laughs> I know that's a lot of a big act because it's quite uh, a complicated easiest... game, but. <laughs> I think it's, I, you can do it in a 30 second. I think the easiest way to describe it is you're trying to take the ball with your team and score on the other end of the field. So it's very similar to American football rules in the sense that you're trying to get it into the end zone or the try zone. And the only difference really is that you can only pass the ball backwards. You can't pass it forward. It's got to either be either backwards or lateral. And then if you want to advance the ball forward, you can kick at any time. So it's basically just a more open-ended version of American football. There's no downs. When you get tackled, the play doesn't end. It's all very continuous, more akin to kind of soccer rules. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of other little <laughs> exciting rules that make the sport a lot more complex. But yeah. that's really the basic rule is you're trying to stop the other team from moving forward and you're trying to move forward. I think a lot of people overcomplicate it. <laughs> yeah, that that is a very succinct uh, description and uh, perhaps important to say that there are <laughs> There are sort of two forms of rugby. The biggest is rugby union, and those are the rules you've described. Rugby league yeah. is very similar, but does True. have downs, as it were. You only get six tackles before the ball is, is turned over. Um, Which I was always intrigued by the fact that that's not the version that took off in the United States, because it's like, oh, mm. well, it's a very similar kind of style to American football. I would have thought that rugby league would be the predominant thing that took off. But for some reason, there's just not really a big culture of rugby league in the U.S. It's all very much rugby union. So I don't really know what the history behind that is. But league yeah. was just never really a thing that actually took off. It's, it's interesting. I would assume, and I don't know 
but I would assume that it's because um, rugby union was uh, there was there was quite a big it, both so both sports originated um, in in the UK and uh, there was quite yeah. a big class divide between who plays mm-hmm. uh, rugby union and who plays rugby league. Um, yeah, typically poorer, more northern parts of the UK play league, and richer, more southern parts of the UK play union. And so, I suspect that has something to do mm. with how why unions spread. Um, but it is an interesting question and one that is is worth looking into more. Um, but how uh, well how well known is rugby in in the United States? Sorry, I just wanted to ask because obviously interacting with Americans like football or what's known as soccer, <laughs> there is like a sort of like a cultural divide, much less so these days. But there was um, there has been. Um, especially over the last few years, even if the gap is being bridged. But so I, I wonder, um, you know, do you do you have to? How often do you have to explain yourself? Um, <laughs> I think that I think a lot of people have like a general concept. Granted, that perception they have is <laughs> a very basic one. They basically just think, oh, it's American football without pads. Um, but I think there is a lot of like recognition of what the word rugby kind of means. Like people know mm-hmm. that it's a sport, but it's also really hard to gauge because I grew up in the East Coast, just kind of Northeast in Boston, which is kind of has a big Irish population. And so mm-hmm. traditionally has been one of the bigger kind of hubs of rugby in the United States. So I think when you're on the coast, like New York, Boston versus California and things like that, those have very big rugby cultures where it's a much mm-hmm. more prominent mm-hmm. sport. But I think kind of in the middle of the country, kind of the more rural areas, it's still yeah. not really a thing that's kind of taken off. So it's okay. it's really all over the place in terms of who's aware of it. But it's been a really fast growing sport in the US for at least the last 15 to 20 years. Cool. Yeah, I've often thought, God, God help everyone else if it's ever taken really seriously in the United States. <laughs> like that's uh, that would totally change the uh, international scene as it has been over the last few years. Um, but it, it very very exciting time to be be a part of it then. So how Devin going from playing in high school? How did you settle on rugby as a as a career? <laughs> well, I don't think it was ever really the goal for it to be a career. I think that when I just started playing, I was like, oh wow, there's a sport that I'm actually not like terrible at. Like I think <laughs> I think that I should I think that I should keep doing that because it's fun not being bad at a sport. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, when I started playing, I just sort of realized I was like, oh, this is something I could actually like excel at. And, you know, I enjoy being athletic. I've just never been that successful at it. (laughs) And I started doing it, you know, kind of year round in the, in the U S we're kind of broken up in our seasons by the winter. So I would play in the fall with the men's team spring Mm -hmm. with my high school team. And then over the summer I would do sevens with an under 19 team. So I kind of ended up just fully immersing myself in it. I went on to become captain of my high school team and then eventually went to, um, University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is a division one college where I played there for four years and ended up becoming captain as well. Um, I think where I started having this idea that maybe I could merge them into a career was my degree is actually in sport management. So I went to a business school with a very specific focus on sport organizations. So I had this idea that, okay, maybe I can now take this love of playing in rugby and combine it with now this kind of experience of how to do the administrative side of things to try to turn that into a career. So I still didn't really have this idea that being professional rugby player was in the cards because at the time there wasn't even a pro league in the U S so I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do? You know, get signed in France or get signed in England at the time. It's really only the like national team players who would have professional contracts. Right. So when, when was the first professional uh, league in the, in the U S 
So there was actually one in, I want to say 2015 that was called Pro Rugby and it only lasted for a season. And there was this whole big to do about how all the players who had been signed for season two, they just like cut them all loose, all the contracts, the whole league dissolved after one year. Um, but then a few years later, that's when the MLR, Major League Rugby, which is the league that exists now, I think they launched around 2017, 2018. So okay. now they're about, I think they're in their fourth season right now. So that's been the league that's been existing now. So when I graduated college, that was in 2015, there were no leagues available. And I was like, well, I want to play a high level of rugby. So right. that's when I decided to kind of travel overseas. That's when I played in New Zealand for a year. Um, I played in Australia and then I also ended up playing up north in Scarborough, which was a uh, okay. experience <laughs> to say the least. I, I saw you put something up on, on Instagram, Devin, where you said that because you played a match this weekend in England. You're, you're in England now with your yeah. partner. And you said the last time you did, you was it you broke your esophagus? Not quite, but a, a bit similar. So I I took a shoulder to the Adam's apple in a match okay. the last time Ooh. I played in England and I fractured my throat. So I fractured, there's a ring of cartilage called the cricoid cartilage that sits above your airway in your throat. So I fractured that in two different places. And then I also Ooh. punctured a hole in my airway. So I was leaking air into my chest and lungs. And then I also had a lovely severe bruise of my vocal cords, which has now lent itself to this lovely deep voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have an am you have an amazing podcast voice. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. Just gonna put that out there. You have yep. a great voice. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's one of the uh, benefits of having a near-death experience in a rugby match. <laughs> yeah. you, end up, you end up with a deeper voice than you had before. But uh, Swings and roundabouts. Recommend. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would not recommend it as the path to go. Um, so that was a bit of a traumatic experience. I had like, you know, after the match, so I ended up playing the rest of the match. So like the, the oh, trainer wow. come onto the field and he was like, oh, you know, try to take some deep breaths. Like as long as you can breathe unobstructed, like you're fine to play on. I was like, okay. So I finished the match and then after the match, that's when I was like coughing up blood and I was like, oh. this doesn't seem like it's okay. <laughs> so after that, that was when I really started like thinking a little bit more seriously about, well, what do you really want to do with your rugby career besides just bouncing around and playing, you know, 25 matches in a year. Like, what do you really want to do that's meaningful beyond just being a successful player? So that was one of the first times that I kind of had this seed planted that I wanted to sort of come out and be able to involve being proud and openly gay with also being proud of, you know, being a hardworking and successful rugby player. Well, that's um, that, that that's a, an interesting point. And, and it's it's uh, it's worth saying that that um, is is part of your um well certainly a big part of being a player but also part of your your brand i suppose right like your website is thatgayrugger.com that's the same for your your instagram um which is a great title a big fan um and, and so then I, I suppose this leads into we're talking all this season about about the body and about um how we relate to the body in terms of good life and this episode in particular is about team sports and so I think that we can we can go on to the the kind of fitness side of it of it later, but um, but a big part of being on a team versus individual sports is um, a sense of kind of um, inclusivity and of being of being kind of uh, having a, a shared identity, a shared goal. So how how do you think playing on a team kind of um, affects how you think about about your own identity and um, 
and 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 not just playing on a team but supporting teams as well i don't know if there, mm. there are some teams that you particularly closely follow um and and of course same to you nick as well like uh, you you've played on on team sports uh, in the past um i know that for the past couple of years kind of muay thai has been has been your big sport but uh, which is individual but there is I think a team element to it as well, as we've talked about before. So um, yeah, maybe, maybe Devin and, and then Nick, how, how does, how does being a team affect how you kind of think about yourself and, and identity and, and supporting teams too? I mean, I think at least for me, you know, it's funny that you bring up the whole that gay rugger kind of title. <laughs> that was actually one of the things that really kind of put me off of the idea of coming out for a long time. And that's mm. why I ended up choosing it as my handle was, I really had this fear of being known as if I came out as being known as that gay rugger. I mean, I mentioned right. that I was captain of my university team. I wanted to just be known as, you know, somebody who was successful at the sport and who was talented at it. I didn't want to just be known as somebody who was kind of defined by his sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. I think that as time went on, you know, I also had this fear of being seen as somebody who's like attention seeking, right? When you're in a team environment, yeah. you don't want to be seen as a way of being like, oh, this is about me, right? I'm a selfish person and I want to be seen as this. So I think that when I decided to come out, I had this sort of realization where I was like, well, you've been putting this off because of this fear that people would perceive you as only being that gay rugby player or, you know, that people would see you, like I said, as somebody who's just doing this for publicity or attention. And once I kind of clicked with me, I was like, well, what is the point of doing all this based on this fear of other people's perceptions? Because ultimately, no matter what you do, that's always going to be there, right? There's always going to be somebody who can label you in that way or kind of put you into that box. So that was why I decided to just sort of take on that name because I'm like, well, if I just kind of call myself that and own it for myself, one, I'm going to be in control of that narrative. And two, maybe somebody else who's kind of having similar thoughts will be like, oh, well, I don't have to be worried about being known as that because this person has already made it very clear that they're taking on that name for themselves. Do you know what it reminds me of? It, it reminds me of um, Tyrion Lannister in the first, scene of, uh, first season of Game of Thrones. He says, <laughs> he says uh, never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you. It was like, you go. I got a big sense of that from there. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite that grandiose. No, but some, but... Something along those lines. <laughs> but, uh, but, but uh, and yeah, perhaps less... Uh, not you know the 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 fate of the seven kingdoms is not not perhaps what's state, but no. nonetheless um very real. so so that so that 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 is uh, on 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 a personal side of things um and how and how i suppose do you feel that like having this aspect of personal identity did you ever feel that there was um uh Oh, and not necessarily related to the, related to to your sexuality, but just in general, a conflict between personal identity and, and a kind of shared team identity. Mm. Um, do you think there's any any conflict there, or is it, or can the two exist uh, side by side, or do they supplement each other? Um, yeah, I think they can definitely exist side by side, but I think when you're in that space where you're very much overthinking, you know, mm. if you're going to be in a position where you're accepted when you come out, you tend to just say, well, you know, you look for any excuse not to come out, right? And so right. for me, it's like, oh, I'm doing this for the good of the team because I want to be seen as somebody who everyone on the team looks up to, right? I don't want to say even alienate a homophobic teammate is like, oh, well, I want to be somebody <laughs> right. who's a leader to all of them, right? You think in this very holistic team way. So I think in some ways it can be detrimental when you put yourself in this whole like team first i think that it's important to remember that to put the team first you really have to put yourself first and make sure that you're doing everything to make sure you're performing at your best mm. even if that means 
coming out and just saying, hey, this is who I am off of the field. That's that's uh, that's that's a good point. And how um, what what were the the reactions like from your from your your teammate when you did uh, decide to come out? Uh, well, it's it's still relatively recent. It's only, it's only been uh, it's only been like four months or so, but okay. it's it's all been it's all been very positive. I mean, I haven't right. had any you know negative people that I know sending me any sort of direct messages. But I think that you know mm-hmm. anybody who isn't particularly supportive has more just chosen to be silent. And you know that's mm-hmm. I think there are worse outcomes out there <laughs> than that. That's uh, well. I'm glad to hear that it's it's been been generally positive. That's that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, and then I suppose so, Nick. Obviously, you you, you haven't had a, a similar experience with 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 team sports. But um, how has have I think that you you have an interesting example as well because you uh, I know when you played football in Geneva, that was as opposed to your daily life with. Swiss people, whereas you went to the international school and did not meet a lot of Swiss people. Um, is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, th- I don't know that they were particularly Swiss people, but they went to Swiss schools, whereas okay. I kind of um, went to school in in the context of this kind of um, expatriate international community. Hmm. Um, so when I say when I say locals, I mean like you know um, Turkish and Portuguese <laughs> guys more than Swiss people but there were Swiss people as well um, but yeah more more just people who were I think more um, who, who, who were more kind of embedded in the local community and uh, that that was always something that I I clung to regardless of where I went I found that um, although we traveled a lot I always built very strong bonds in many respects stronger bonds with um, the teammates that I played football with, regardless of where I was than with a lot of my classmates, because, um, our kind of identities uh, related to the places where we were living were kind of, kind of intransigent sort of fleeting, you know, we were just passing through, um, as it were. And as was this, the same was true of a lot of international school kids. So, um, you know, if you, if you couldn't necessarily root yourself to a place per se, you could certainly root yourself to a community directly through people and, um, and team sports are a great way to, um, uh, enforce enforce those bonds. Um, I, I think they've made some really interesting points about the fact that th- they're also then become these these um, kind of um, like paradigms of 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 the team, you know, and sort of mannerisms and like a microculture develops that um, you know you you you're part of a band, I guess, or you feel like you'd be part of a band so long as you're respecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 might feel alienated if not you know um and and uh i think that is true on the other hand i was also i only played up until i was um you know 15 16 which is like i hope the summit of immaturity um, <laughs> especially for young boys right so I, I wouldn't know what it would be like as as a young adult for instance you know at that point i had switched over to um an individual sport and um yeah, that's interesting as well way. to me though because i'm a I'm a big fighting fan i've never you know i used okay. to wrestle but i've never actually gotten into the mixed martial mm-hmm. arts side of things mm-hmm. but from a muay thai perspective i mean i know that even though it's a very individual 
sport, I'm sure that you have like a team that you kind of for sure. out with. For sure. So yeah. I think that's an interesting thing as well, because that's an example of a situation where your strength to the team really is about your strength as an individual, right? How yeah. much you put into making yourself as good as you can be is something that kind of rivets to the rest of the people that you get to train with and you mm-hmm. experience that with. So what has that been like? Because there is still this kind mm. of team sport culture. Well, right I, yeah, for sure. For sure. I would say that um, more, I mean, as much, I think sport is a great um, democratizer in many respects, you know, it's like, uh, it's this one beautiful place where like, no matter who, what you are capable of elsewhere or, you know, how much like money you have, say, or whatever the case might be, like, if you can't perform on the fields, you know, there's no way to hide from that. Like you, yeah. you just, you are what you can do. And, um, and that's amazing. I think the advantage of, um, doing a, an individual sport, but in the context of a group is that, um, like really, I think that a successful gym will be able to kind of curate an atmosphere of total inclusivity, because actually as much as you need your teammates to train, you don't need your teammates to fight, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's very, it's very kind of self-expressive in that sense. Right. So like, although for instance, you'll go fight, you'll wear shorts and a gown that'll have the logo of the club and that's who you're representing and whose values you're taking with you. Like at the end of the day, it's just you there, you know? So like whatever, like your fight moniker is your fight style, whatever tattoos you want to wear, whatever piercings, that just anything you want to do, that's, that's you, you do that. Um, you do that wherever you want to um, and however you want to. And and that really doesn't get in the way at all. So as much as it is a team sport in the sense of training together, the kinship is slightly different. And like, for instance, now across this pandemic, um, as much as I, you know, you, you need training partners. I mean, I've had one consistent training partner really for the last few months. And that's been enough. Like a lot of the time I just train by myself, you know, which is, you know, you miss out on a lot of things, but, um, you really don't need more than that. So although I haven't had the team, I've still been able to kind of, I guess, maintain my relationship and the identity I hold towards it with the sport, despite that, you know, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So, that's um that, that's very good to know. Well, I suppose off of the um kind kind of related to that then um how because I, as as you say Nick, you, not everyone in a Muay Thai gym needs to to fight. Um, whereas in in a rugby team, you can there are people who probably just come to to uh, to trainings and and yeah. like to have a good time. There are social clubs for sure. Um, but when you are on the pitch, everyone wants to have a game, and then there are you know, there are going to be people who are better, going to be people who are worse. Um, and that obviously becomes more important as you become a professional versus doing it as a hobby. But what, so what, what is your view then Devin on, on um, inclusivity in sports and not just around ability, although that might be part of it, but around, around identity as well. You know, it's, as you say, you found, you felt a lot of pressure to kind of hide part of your identity because you were worried about, about it being an inclusive space. So what, 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 what are your thoughts kind of just around that and what can be done to kind of make, team sports in particular more more sort of inclusive i think that one thing i always sort of consider when i'm talking about this is i think people really underestimate the power that sports have in this respect like Mm. people think that oh well sports is just a space where you go and you compete and you show up on a saturday and you either win or you lose but I think that a lot of people really look to sports as kind of a microcosm of how inclusive society is, right? So I think that when you're in those spaces, specifically from the perspective of somebody who is, you know, LGBTQ, 
it's long been seen as kind of a space that was specifically not for them, right? And it was mm. specifically seen as a space where they were told that they were lesser and that they weren't valued as much because they weren't seen as being, you know, masculine and therefore an asset to the team. So I think that as we kind of go on, being able to counter that narrative and say that, well, no, actually we find strength in our diversity and the fact that anybody can pick up this sport and play it really makes the sport better as a whole, regardless of people's abilities, right? Because it now opens this door for all these athletes who thought that, oh, maybe that space wasn't for me. When you start seeing that sport kind of embrace everybody, it really opens the doors to all these athletes who you might never have expected to be talented. Like I said, I was never some crazy athlete where, you know, a coach would walk down the hall and point at me and say, we need to get this person out to the field. <laughs> but it's like, you know, here we are 13 years later and I've accomplished all these things that I don't think that, you know, people with much more athletic ability than I had growing up haven't done because they just didn't stick with the sport or they didn't feel that drive. So I think it's important to show that the space is inclusive to people who you wouldn't even necessarily perceive as somebody who's going to go on to be some mm. successful athlete because you just never know. Mm. Sorry. I, sorry. I just wanted to add also, I think it's sort of related to that. Um, and the previous question as well is I think there's something interesting about um, team sports, uh, especially I think in, in the sense that, it's a, it's a, it's a rare place where, you know, if we, if, you know, if we, most schools, for instance, like, like, you know, boys and girls interact, but like on team sports for a lot of, for a lot of the time, like it's really like a, an all male environment, for instance. Right. So when you're talking about like inclusivity and identity um, and it being like, kind of like a microcosm of how the culture operates, it's really like, you know, like the, the, the notions of like masculinity and inclusivity reflected in like the team sport environment, the all male environment where like young boys are becoming young men is like really like pivotal actually um, to those like individuals growing up um, later. I wonder if you have any thoughts um, Dev on, on um, yeah, maybe, you know, and we're talking about inclusivity, whether there is, um, whether there should be more kind of like interplay actually between um, the sexes in, in sports teams, uh, whether that should happen at certain levels, you know, whether an amateur or professional or whether there is actually a really important value in like containing these spaces for like, you know, um, I don't know, um, male development and then female development on the other side, for instance. Um, I think that it can be, I mean, like you said, it's really formative, right? When you're, and so many of the people I talk to who are, you know, openly gay, haven't, you know, really been involved in sports. A lot of their experiences are the same, right? It was like, oh, I was forced to do it in school. I hated it. All the people around me were one way and I was a different way, right? So I think that, I think that it is important to keep it inclusive. And I think that people get a little bit lazy in a way of being like, oh, well, this side of the sport should be just for men and this side of the sport should be just for women. I think that, you know, I have people who I, um, I do a touch league, for example, in my hometown where we have, you know, we have men's players from the area. We have women's players from the area as long, you know, as young as high school women's players who have never even played in a match and as old as, you know, players like me who have played at the professional level, there's still a way to bring them all together and all get better, right? I'm not necessarily saying, hey, mm -hmm. you guys should start doing a full contact scrimmage between the top men's side in the area versus a high school women's team. You know, there is a degree of logic to this, but I think that, you know, there's even um, some very successful women's players in my area who, you know, play for Team USA and they'll consistently come out and train with the men's team. You know, same thing, there might be some full contact aspects that they'll kind of, 
go to the side for, but in terms of training their passing, training their decision-making and skills, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. there is still a big advantage to doing both. And I really think that any opportunity you have to train is a good one. And I think that another yeah. way that I kind of look at that is, you know, when you're playing on a team with very different abilities, it really helps you grow as a leader because you're now in a position where it's like, okay, I know that I have a knowledge right now that a lot of people around me don't have. How do I then use that knowledge to make the people around me better and make this more successful regardless of what the person's ability is next to me? So I think it is important to really foster that because it's not necessarily about, oh, this person is better than this person. It's about, well, how can I make my use my skills to make the people around me also successful? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's um that that that's a, a really a really useful um it's true of my time actually. I don't know, I don't I think for you on the university team as well, like when you were doing that, um you probably can relate to this, right? But it's like for instance at the at the at the martial arts club, every Friday would be sparring night. And you know, you would you could you could spar, which is you know, like play fight against anyone on the team, you know, obviously you had to pick your sparring partners in terms of like kind of height and weight and mm. um, skill level logically to a degree. But, you know, I could go from fighting a 110 kilo Moldovan to, a, you know, a 16, a 16 year old girl, yeah. you know, who's half my weight. And like knowing that like there is space to progress and to have fun and to like, in both of those cases, you know, because on the one hand, it's like, there's like a Goliath that like, no matter what I do, it's just nothing, no damage is being done. And then on the other, it's like, I really have to control what I'm doing, you know, because my objective is not to just throw a head kick and, you know, yeah. send someone to hospital. It's a, it's a team sport, right? So it's really about like, let's progress together. Um, so I, I, I relate to that. Yeah, yeah I, I do as well. Um, for, for some context, Devin, I'm where Nick, Nick fought Muay Thai at a, we, we used to be roommates and he fought Muay Thai at a local club. And uh, I, uh, I fought with my university and um, by far the best fighter in our club was this uh, woman who was like 150 centimeters tall. She fought at like the 45 kilogram weight category. Um, but she was technically definitely the best and is, has yeah. professional ambitions as well. And so when I would fight with her, maybe I could, I could kind of, if, if, if we were in the clinch or something, I could kind of maybe be physically stronger that she can get, but I'm not getting anything out of that. And yeah. she's not getting anything. Out of like it's, it's the time to like, okay, step back, watch the technique, actually learn from it in that sense. And so I think that that is um, a, a really useful uh, uh, view to have. And I suppose there are, um, so there are two, two, two things I want to follow up on that. And the first I suppose is, so inclusivity is obviously really important in this context. Um, but what kind of steps do you think need to be taken in order to make that a reality? I think obviously having people such as yourself in professional positions who represent these other um, kind of identities are is is a huge step, and, and perhaps you'd agree. But is there anything else? Is there anything else that needs to, needs to happen um, in this in this context? Well, I think there's almost actually overly focused on professionals, right? I think that mm -hmm. there is this big call of saying, oh, well, we need professionals in these positions, but that really ignores which, you know, what 99% of sport is, which is what's mm -hmm. happening at the grassroots, right? It's happening at the school level. So I think it's really about, you know, focusing on the leadership in those positions. In this case, you know, if you're a coach or you're a teacher and making sure that they're taking the steps to make their space inclusive, making sure that they're taking the time to vocally express, actually, this is a space for all. And these are the things that we will accept and that is fine. And this is the type of language or actions that we do not think are acceptable or conducive to a team environment. So I think that setting that precedent from a really kind of young age 
actually causes the ripple the other direction, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you have people getting introduced to the sport or anything under those values, they're going to carry it forward, right? Rather than trying to work from the top down and saying, oh, well, we need to teach these professionals who have just come through an extremely, you know, homophobic or sexist kind of system on their way up to now say, well, actually, we need you to unlearn those things so that you can be an example for the kids below you. So I think that there is almost, yeah, like a misplaced focus on saying that it's really the professionals who have to set the way. I think it's very helpful to have that kind mm -hmm. of representation, but the biggest issue still lies at the grassroots where there's mm -hmm. kind of an attitude among coaches who might be either volunteers or kind of barely paid where they're just like, well, you know, I'm just doing my best, right? You know, I'm, mm. the fact that I'm showing up and coaching at all is is good enough. But I think there needs to be a bit more accountability and thought put into exactly what messages we're giving to young athletes. That's, um, yeah, that's, I, I'd never thought about the, the ripple going the other direction. That's a, that's a really excellent point. Um, thank you. And, and I think, and uh, around all of this as well, um, Devin, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and hear you speak mm -hmm. about it. You are currently raising money for the Transgender Law Project in the UK or Transgender Law Center in the USA. Yeah, Transgender Law Center. And um, and obviously uh, the the trans uh, trans sort of rights and representation in sport is is a huge um, and very controversial issue, uh, yeah. particularly in rugby. The RFU. Um, decided uh, not long ago to to bar transgender players from 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 playing um and so maybe you could talk uh, yeah a little bit about about the transgender law center and and the role of sort of trans athletes in, in sport sure so actually it wasn't the rfu it was um world rugby oh, so okay. even higher okay. up than the rfu sure. it was world rugby who who banned trans women specifically from international competition mm -hmm. but recently the rfu came up with a separate proposal which was they wanted to basically require all trans women who were either above six feet tall or above, I think it was 90 kilograms, not even mm -hmm. 90, I think it may have been even less, 85 or something like that, whatever it was, a certain weight that they be subjected to basically being evaluated by a coach to see if they have, you know, a quote unquote, unsafe or unfair advantage. Right. So I think what you're starting to see is this very harmful idea that you know, trans women are dangerous and that there's something to kind of be feared in rugby when there's really no evidence to support that. Right. So um, as it relates to the Transgender Law Center, the reason I'm raising money, um, I partnered up with an artist who created this kind of beautiful piece that shows uh, rugby players being lifted up with sort of trans um, palette colors to sort of represent the rugby community's support of trans players. Because mm -hmm. I think it's important to say that even though World Rugby has passed these uh, laws, they are not really representative of the rugby community as a whole. Um, the rugby community has always been this massive safe haven for trans women where they were allowed to participate and you know there's been this big kinship between trans women and the rest of you know the rest of the women's rugby community so I came up with this fundraiser as a way to sort of raise money for the Transgender Law Center because unfortunately, as important as it is to fight back against these policies in rugby, right now there is a lot of legislation in the US that is actually sweeping across all sports. So mm -hmm. for example, one of them is in Florida. They recently passed a law that basically would require all kids to compete with their, you know, quote unquote, 
you know, assigned gender at birth. And so basically what that would look like is now all trans kids are banned full stop from playing any sort of school sports, regardless of what the sport is. And also if there's ever a kid who, you know, if a coach looks at them and says, oh, they don't really look like they conform to the gender that they're competing with, that child can now be required by the school to go and be subjected to a genital examination to make sure that that matches up with the gender that they compete with. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, pr- traumatic. If that was yeah, it, very yeah. traumatic. So it's it's getting to the point where you're starting to see how harmful it can be when you're starting to pick and choose, well, who can compete in our sport? And, you know, what does it mean to be a woman, right? What does mm-hmm. it mean to be a woman's athlete? Because the fact of the matter is, it's not just going to be trans kids that this, you know, that this affects, right? There's going to be, you know, very successful women's athletes who, a lot of them are going to be athletes of color who are strong and too many of other people are going to say, well, why are they, you know, why are they winning all these sporting events? Let's question their gender and see if, you know, if they fall into the category that we perceive them as being. So it's this whole ripple effect that happens when you start trying to pick and choose who can participate in sports. So I think the reason it's really important to kind of speak up and raise money is because Right now, there's not a lot of advocacy happening for it. A lot of people are just sort of saying, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Like men shouldn't compete against women. It's like, well, we're not talking about men, right? We're talking about people who have either identified as being a girl and have come up at that youth level being that way or have since taken hormones to make sure that they are leveling out that sort of playing field to make sure that it is a fair and safe, inclusive space. So there is a lot of actual kind of policies that are in place, such as for rugby, for example, before they passed this, they required anybody who was competing in the women's side of the sport to have required um, showing proof of medical records for an entire year of blood tests showing that their hormones were within a certain range that was agreed upon. So there are ways to keep sport inclusive without just saying outright, oh, well, trans women are dangerous. Trans women have an unfair advantage. It's like, well, no, we can go as a scientific approach Mm. to make sure that we keep sport inclusive and make sure that we also keep in turn, you know, society inclusive for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting you say about that hormone hormones though, because that in itself can be um, perhaps a a, a a potentially damaging idea. The the case that comes to mind is of Casta Semenya, who is yeah. of course the the most famous example of um, a woman who has higher testosterone levels than women typically do, but yeah. that's but that's about it, and is forced to take hormone blockers um, as a result of that. Back and forth. I'm not sure what the current ruling is. It's changed several times. Um, who's a she, she's a runner um, in in the in the Olympics. I think she's competed yeah. in the Olympics. Um, and uh, and yeah. So so is is that um, do do you see that then these 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 hormone checks as um, something that 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 is necessary or 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 as a as a point of compromise or um, uh, yeah, how do you how do you think? Because the the example, uh, just to give a bit, bit, bit more context, I had a, a lecturer at university who mm-hmm. um, told us one who, in talking about the body and this 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 uh, this, this question in particular, made the case that at, at an elite level and only at an elite level, men's and women's sports should be separated because mm. it, men the biology of it is or males I suppose you should say is is puts you at, a, at, a, at another level but that's kind of the only instance in which that should be um so with all of that in mind about and, and the invasive nature of, of taste testing for hormones what mm-hmm. yeah what do you think the kind of role of, of this this would be so there's a few things about that and i think that he's spot on that in the sense that 
sports should definitely be open at the grassroots levels. I mean, you see that a lot of sports remain co-ed, you know, almost in some sports throughout high school, right? So mm-hmm. I think that it is important to try to keep grassroots level open. But I think you also start running into a really weird idea that elite sports specifically need to be separated, especially, you know, uh, to provide context of specifically towards rugby. Now you're saying that a successful trans woman athlete can compete at the club level, regardless of how good she is, can compete at the club level against other women, but you're saying she can't play against the most well-trained and successful athletes in the world. So it's like, well, why are why is it safer and fairer for them to compete at the grassroots level, but not safe and fair for them to compete at the highest level of the sport? So I think that's where you get into this really weird thing is in theory, the people who are at the highest level should be in the best position to not only protect themselves, but also mm-hmm. compete. And I think that if you talk to rugby players specifically, they'll say that size and strength is kind of a small part of rugby in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's only one aspect. You still need to know how to play. You still need to be fit enough to move around. You still need to have all these abilities to actually apply that to be successful in some way. We've all played against people much bigger than us. We've played against people much stronger. We've played against people much faster. So I think that's always an interesting aspect to this is I think we're almost hyper-focused on the fairness of sport. I mean, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, there have been intersex athletes for years who didn't know they were intersex, who have had, you know, a perceived advantage because of testosterone, or there have been athletes who are just naturally more athletic. But we never really cried foul and said, well, it's it's ridiculously unfair that this athlete is better than me. It's like, well, that's just kind of sport, right? There's going to be people you run into with advantages. There's going to be people you run into with disadvantages. Um, in regards to the, you know, testosterone and hormones piece, it's, it can be a tricky issue, right? And I think that it's something that people will agree or disagree on. I think from the trans athletes I know who play rugby, their view on it is, you know, I think there is a degree of reasonable accommodation, right? I don't think that I necessarily, the second I decide that I identify with a certain gender, I should be able to just straight away go and compete with them, right? I think that it is reasonable to have a degree of reasonable accommodation where I, you know, go through the hormones and show that you know, I am leveling the playing field and I'm making an effort to make sure that I'm taking steps to make it a more level kind of playing field in that sense. So the best example they gave is it's like, you know, say you have a knee injury and you have to wear a metal brace that in order to play. If you're playing rugby, you're not going to be allowed to play, right? Because the metal brace is a danger to other people there. It's not a reasonable accommodation. So if you apply the same idea when in regards to, you know, is it reasonable for a trans athlete to participate? there needs to be a degree of, okay, well, let's meet halfway and do something to make it a reasonable accommodation that it remains inclusive, but we're also still making sure that we're taking steps because trans athletes don't want to injure other people. Like it's not, they're not getting into sport to have some crazy unfair advantage or to hurt other people, right? They want to be on a level playing field as much as anybody. Mm. So if that's what it takes to kind of show, you know, this is our goodwill, we are doing this because we do acknowledge that, yes, if you're looking at data, there is a difference between a, you know, a men's athlete versus a woman's athlete, but there are ways to really significantly lower that advantage. And it's been shown statistically through the use of hormone therapy. Um, In particular, there was a study done by the Air Force that basically showed after a year of taking hormones, the biggest advantage retained by a trans athlete or even just a, you know, general population trans person to the cisgender population was they retained a 15% advantage in grip strength, which I think we could say is probably not going to transfer too much in terms of a <laughs> athletic advantage. 
But that was just after a year of hormones. After two mm. years, all the advantages went to the point where it was statistically insignificant, right? We're talking advantages of between five to 7%. The biggest of those advantages still being grip strength. So it's like, now we're getting to this thing where it's like, okay, a 10% advantage to the not even athletes, but just the general population is not something we're willing to accept. But if you go into sports, I'm sure you'd be able to find right. on a single rugby team, a difference of 25% of strength or, you know, 25% of speed. So it's like when you start getting into these minute details, it just gets very ridiculous when you start trying to figure out, well, what is an acceptable ability for an athlete to have in order to compete? That's, um, that's that's fascinating and very uh, very very well reasoned, I think. So so Devin, where can where can people find this this fundraiser? So you can find it on my Instagram page primarily at that gay rugger. Um, I'm also going to have stuff on all socials. You know, my Twitter is also at that gay rugger, Facebook as well as my website. Um, we have a link there. I can also provide you guys with the link to maybe put in the description of yeah, this. That'll we'll take you straight to our straight to our fundraising page. Um, right now, it's it's off to a great start. We're less than two days in, and we've already raised twenty five hundred dollars, which was actually Amazing. more than half of our goal that we've already raised, and we still have about three and a half weeks left. So we're really hoping to not only meet that goal but smash it and try to you know provide as many resources as we can. Because unfortunately, this is a case where the transgender law center is kind of heavily outmatched in terms of financial resources because the lobbies and the kind of political actors at <laughs> at work here have much, much larger financial backings than we do. So really any bit helps and it's greatly appreciated regardless of if you're in the US. These issues can still affect you whether you're in the UK because the precedents we set in the US unfortunately also sets precedents for other countries in terms of what is acceptable around these issues. Mm. Sorry, I just wanted to... Um... To clarify, you explained the the kind of the issue um, and the issues surrounding this idea very well, and um, and, and a pretty clear idea of um, what your objectives are. I wanted to know a little bit about um, actually the center itself. So, is it um, is it basically campaigning and advocating for policy change, or like what what are the um, what what's the plan of action? Do you know for the for the actual law center itself? That's a great question. So they actually have, they're actually the largest um, trans-led organization in the entire country. So they do a lot of things. Some of that, you know, the thing is when you're actually donating to an organization, you can't actually donate um, as a charity to lobby. So this is actually not necessarily providing lobby um, resources. What it does, though, is they have a bunch of kind of local programs where they provide legal resources to trans people. So, for example, if you're in a state where you're now being denied health care, they are going to provide you the resources so that you can still get health care, even though that's not what your state is like mm -hmm. requiring any or allowing anymore. So they're doing things to make sure that people can continue their hormone therapy to continue to get access to, you know, life saving and gender affirming care. Um, another example would be if you're experiencing discrimination in the workplace or at school, or even in this case, a lot of the time, unfortunately, by the government, they will provide you legal ag advocacy resources where they can say, hey, this is legal. You need to provide this. You need to provide either this accommodation and this discrimination is not okay. So that is sort of the services they provide is at a more grassroots level of making sure that the policies that are in place are being respected and enforced, and then also finding ways around harmful policies that go against the constitution and what is allowed in terms of requiring people to have access to healthcare. Awesome. Thank you. It's a great description. Thank you. Um, well, I, um, I, I have uh, just, just 
we've been going for a while now. One more question before we wrap up. Before I do, sure. Nick, do you have any any anything else you want to ask Stefan before we? Yeah, well, I, I sort of just, um, I think it's something that you had mentioned in passing, Adam, but we, we never um, fully got into it. I just wanted to ask about, um, you know, uh, sort of, I guess it's more of more of um, a, a whimsical question, but um, about like identity in relation to teams that you support rather than play in or are a part of, you know, um, and and yeah, wh whether you know, what do you support your local Bostonian rugby team or what's what's your you know what, how how does that work for you? Yeah, I think, and uh, as a professional as well. Sorry if I could add, like, what's your relationship to? like other sports teams, you know, within your own sport? Um, I mean, I'm a big sports fan in terms of like rugby. I like to just watch good rugby. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not even, mm -hmm. you know, I played for the New England Free Jacks. I'm not even necessarily rooting for the Free Jacks in every single game. I like to see them succeed because I've got a lot of friends on the team. But I'm really just looking to watch sport and I like to watch mm -hmm. a good kind of competitive game. And that's always been yeah. my um, view towards it. I think that it's fun to kind of get caught up in the regional <laughs> sort of fight of my team is better than your team. Um, but I really do just enjoy watching a good competitive event. And as it kind of relates to, you know, seeing a team that is or is not supportive of, you know, my sexuality or kind of the values that I might um that I like to talk about, such as trans rights. I think that to a degree, I like to hold them accountable and say that I would like you to represent in this way and definitely not be doing things that are actively harmful. But then in another way, it's hard for me to separate as a sports fan where I'm like, for example, I love to watch the UFC, but the UFC doesn't necessarily have policies in terms of what their fighters can yeah. or cannot say. So it's like I end up supporting fighters who I really enjoy watching, for example, like Colby Covington, who's an incredible fighter who I find pretty abhorrent as a person. <laughs> so right, I still right. find a way to sort of separate mm. people's identity and just sort of appreciate a sport for what it is. But it's kind of, it is a bit of a tricky paradox, yeah. right? Because you do want them to kind of at least not be harmful to your community if you're not at least going to be sure. supportive. Sure. And it's like, sure. I still really want to buy your pay-per-view on Saturday. Yeah, <laughs> it's, no, it's, a tough, sure. it's a tough one. <laughs> For sure. For sure. And I guess it, it's sort of interesting to when like, you know, I mean, obviously being a fan of sports, you can watch all sorts of different sports, but like the sport that you are a professional um, uh, of, you know, is, is an interesting, then I wonder, you know, about that relationship, right? Like what, how that changes it. Cause you know, I know for instance, like, you know, um, musicians listen to music way more analytically. And so maybe yeah. there is like, you know, it's like maybe the intent, like the intensity of the interaction is much higher and the frequency of it is too, but there's slightly, a, there's a different lens through which it's observed. Um, Definitely. I mean, and that's why I think I appreciate, you know, just seeing a good rugby match rather than the team that I support winning in a messy way. I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. like, I'm looking at it and I'm picturing myself in those positions and saying, is this a level I can compete at? Would I be able to do that as successfully as that other person did it? And I do always kind of look at it through that sort of analytical I, because especially as an American player who had no concept of the sport when he started, I got a lot of my learning from just watching old matches mm. and saying, oh, so this is what the sport is actually supposed to look like. So there is a very interesting aspect when you play a sport at that level to say, you know, where you're looking and you're watching a player, your position and seeing what they do and trying to apply that to yourself. Nice. 
that's um yeah that's brilliant and i think it, it, it on that note it's important to say that you know fans um can hold hold the teams they support accountable as we saw with the uh, european super league just a few weeks ago right yeah. like it was yeah. announced fans were outraged and within 48 hours it was gone it was like done. um so i think it's important to remember power as a fan there um there's huge Devin, it's been it's been it's been really awesome uh yeah for sure it's really awesome talking to you and getting to hear all this. Just before we, we wrap up, last question, sure. uh, quick one, although it's a big question, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be related to what we've talked about today, but what for you goes into living a good life? Mm. Well, I think that for me, especially since coming out and all that stuff mm. has made a lot of very positive changes for me, I would say that one of the keys is just taking the time to build confidence in yourself, you know, doing things at your own pace. I think a lot of people, you know, in relation to coming out very specifically, put this big focus on, well, you really want to do this as soon as you can, you know, you want to, you want to step into this and get to living your life as fast as you can. And I think that there is a degree of truth to that, but I think what gets lost is the importance of just building up a strong support system around you so that you're happy with yourself. You know, that the people around you who support and love you are happy with you. And that's really all that matters, right? If you're happy with yourself and you're in a position where you're comfortable and confident that you're going to be kind of loved and accepted for who you are, that's always going to be kind of the recipe for a successful life, right? I think people can come in and say, oh, you should make this amount of money or you should try to accomplish this amount of things. But it really boils down to just that basic idea of, do you have the support to be doing the things that you want to do and expressing yourself in the way you want to express yourself? So I think the most important thing is just to take time to build those relationships and find those people who are always going to be there, who you don't have to second guess if they're going to support you regardless of what decisions you make. Solid answer. Solid. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> solid. Um, fantastic. Thank, thanks so much, Devin. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up now. Um, so obviously, uh, Transgender Law Center, we will put a link to that in the show notes and Thank people you. can find it at all of your all of your handles at that gay rugger right or thatgayrugger.com um is there anything else you want to plug um here at the end of end of the show Ooh, that's a great question <laughs> <laughs> any matches coming up people may may be able to go to or see on tv uh, they're still not allowing <laughs> spectators in uh in in the uk but now i would just say you know stay tuned on my page because i'm obviously working on this fundraiser now but i'm hoping to kind of um, start some other initiatives shortly after that where I'm hoping to start doing some inclusive kind of rugby coaching as well as touch rugby tournament events. So, you know, any sort of thing like that, I'm going to be putting out on my social media. So if you can just follow and kind of keep following along with the journey, that would be amazing because I'm hoping to do a lot of, you know, important work around that in the near future. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Uh, Nick, Actually, here's one other thing. If you yeah. have any projects you would like me to be involved in, you know, any other sort of charity things that you're thinking of, or you have a speaking engagement that you would like me to come and do, that's another thing that I'm always, you know, my DMs are open. You can find my contact info on my website. I'm always looking for things like that as well. Awesome. Great. Um, thanks very much. Nick, uh, any, anything you want to plug? Um, no, I mean, I would also like to offer my services as a, a, a speaker <laughs> at any events, but I don't know um, that I would have the same impact. Um, no, I have, I have nothing to plug, uh, just a, our, our intro, but if they've made it this far, we're probably preaching to the choir. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, the, uh, that's that's very true. And the last thing we do, of course, to cleanse our palates of everything we've spoken about today is is shared a fun fact. I don't know if you if you have one, Devin, that you um, like. Share. It's okay if you don't. Um, but, um, uh, hmm. 
What is a good fun fact? I mean, I the easiest fun fact is always the fractured throat story, but a <laughs> fractured throat story. But I already kind of used that one. Um, what would be a fun fact? We can count it if you want. We can count that. <laughs> no, we here count here's that a fun, fun fact, fact. Actually, so my primary sport before I started playing rugby, and I mentioned I tried out for baseball, but my big sport that I was already looking into Division One universities to go to was actually ultimate frisbee. Oh yes, my, Devin. That was my. That's that amazing. Was my, that was my. You just sport. made Adam's day. I, oh those, those were the two sports I did in high school: was ultimate frisbee and rugby. Amazing, cool yeah. guy, great guest. <laughs> yeah, it was the it was the lack of physicality in ultimate frisbee that ultimately that ultimately kind of pushed me away from it, and also being short. Everyone's just tall, mm. and they catch over you, that's and it's true. like, what's, what's the fun in that? Uh, yeah, as as a, as a short man myself, I yeah, yeah that's a. <laughs> Amazing. (laughs) Nick, fun fact. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I do have a fun fact. So I was doing a whole shark thing um, this like season, but I'm actually moved to dolphins now. And um, so my fun facts that I've discovered recently about dolphins is um, that they, that they use whistles um, to call each other and um, they respond like dolphins have like within their little dolphin collectives, the little gangs as they're called in the scientific community, (laughs) families, gangs, whatever. Um, (laughs) They, uh, they, yeah, they have individual, they have individual whistles and um, they use them like names. So like if you, if, uh, if one dolphin whistles a specific sound uh, melody to another, that dolphin will respond with its own call. Um, and, and that's how they communicate. And scientists figure this out by collecting a bunch of data about um, like of, of like different dolphin kind of gangs um, and, and their own respective ones. And like, then, then they played like the calls of this collective to a different collective of dolphins and they wouldn't react. They only react to the specifics uh, signal um so so yeah clever clever animals what about you adam what's your what's your fun fact are you gonna talk about <laughs> uh maybe not but 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 um <laughs> certainly not the fact that dolphins have names i love that but uh my fun fact is actually about um i was interested in professional sport and i wanted to find out the first professional team sport mm. um and turns out it's cricket um and really? that yeah after the english civil war in the 1660s um a lot of people were really into gambling and they loved gambling on horse racing prize fighting and cricket and so from the mid 17th century onwards particularly in the 18th century gamblers started financing teams to represent their interests and that is where the first uh professional team sports came from as a result of gambling yeah because i'd imagine the first just professional sport full stop was probably fighting probably um, yeah classical times most um, likely yeah yeah i mean yeah, i mean i guess it was that's what just people were doing before we had the luxury of sport yeah. <laughs> it's just fighting like for real yeah exactly <laughs> for land and like supplies <laughs> oh dear well some the more things change the more they stay the same yeah, uh, yeah. and on, on that note um thank you devin so much for being such a wonderful guest um nick thanks for doing you know what you do and uh <laughs> thank you to you dear listener for listening and with love and rage goodbye